Hmm. Are you sure about that? Is that what you think? Is that so? Hi, I'm Sokka, the host of Sokka's Is That So, a show where we challenge conventional wisdom across a range of industries, hoping to get you to ask better questions and not take things at face value. I'm originally from Botswana and Nigeria. However, I've had the chance to travel through Europe, North America, and Latin America to have many of my assumptions challenged and combat my biases. The goal of the show is to help you learn along with me as we challenge more conventional norms. We're recording the show during the coronavirus, so hopefully you should have more than enough time to listen to these. Let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of Sokka's Is That So? On today's episode, we'll be talking about the misconceptions surrounding data and cybersecurity. Very sexy stuff, guys. Uh, the reason why this is pretty important is because it touches every aspect of our lives, something that's really pervasive, whether you're using a phone, tablet, Windows computer, whatever it is, this is something that we should all be thinking about, and I thought it's worth exploring. Later on, we'll be speaking to someone called Jeff. Jeff is an expert in cybersecurity from an investigative journalist perspective, and he's worked with the BBC and a few other key companies or portfolio companies, should I say, that are actually investigating these types of topics on a more pronounced basis. But with that said, let's kick the show off. So first and foremost, why is this topic important? So I really thought about it the other day uh, when I was actually typing my password in and I thought to myself, how secure is this actually? You know, uh, my password of 0000, which is obviously super secure and super safe is um, something that obviously I only know, wink, wink, but it's pretty interesting from the perspective of, is this actually keeping my account secure and safe? Now, I thought it was, but really it potentially isn't, not only because the password itself is pretty crap, but it's easy for these programs that are out there to pretty much try multiple types of passwords and whether it's 000 or 5078, there are algorithms that are out there that are actually trying to use different types of uh, passwords that you have to see which one actually works. So it's a matter of how long it takes these algorithms to break into your particular um, account as opposed to when that happens, or rather should I say as opposed to if. So um, this became pretty important to me and I thought about it because you know, we live in a world which is very data heavy, very cybersecurity-esque, and so we need to just be prevalent or thinking about these types of things uh, on a regular basis. So with that said, uh, let's go into some of the more nitty gritty parts of it. So when it comes to cybersecurity and data, we all assume that companies keep our data very secure and the onus is on them to actually do all the hard work. Uh, apart from obviously having our own passwords, we assume that they have the correct infrastructure in place, that their employees handle our data in a very secure way, and we feel very safe with things like GDPR and things of that nature. But is that really the reality? Are we actually safe because we put the onus on companies and they have all this type of infrastructure to take care of these, uh, these needs? Um, the reality is I don't think so or not as much as you'd think because I work at a fairly large company and I've worked with small businesses and large businesses and it's actually harder for small businesses to have good cybersecurity infrastructure. Now you'd think that most hackers want to get into the large companies, but it's actually easier for them to get into small and medium sized businesses, the people that have the most vulnerability and simultaneously the least amount of money to spend on these types of initiatives. So. I don't know if our data is as secure as we think it is. Working at some of these companies myself, I see the level of security that, that they have, or should I say uh, level of uh, responsibility that they take for security. And it's becoming more and more pervasive as the industry grows, but everyone has seen these hacks that have happened from time to time. And it's quite worrying uh, because you don't know what kind of information you've put out there. I mean, just think about a company like Google, for instance. Google has all your information from birthdays to drunk texts that you sent or emails and stuff that you've sent. Um, they pretty much control everything about you and they know all this information. It would be a real shame if all this information got out there. So 
it's in our best interest, but ultimately it's also in the company's best interest to keep our data safe and secure because any breaches could be met with serious fines and violations. In fact, here in Europe, it could be up to 2% of revenues if there was a serious cybersecurity breach. Now, 2% might not sound like a lot, but if you're a large company, that could be the difference between profitability and a loss for that year. But that's one side of the equation, looking at companies. But let's look, look about it from, or think about it from an ethical perspective. Um, right now, there is the notion or the conception out there that uh, these things are just going to happen and there's nothing we can really do about it. But whose responsibility and how is it in society and how do we view uh, our data as a whole? Who actually owns our data? Is it us? Is it the corporations? Is it a government? For the most part, you would think it'd be us that owns our data, but that's not the actual truth. For the most part, it is corporations whom we've given consent to actually have our data that are free to use it in any which way they see fit. Now, whether they use this to make better products for us, which is a benefit, is something that we all assume is what they're doing. However, there could be malicious, or let me not say malicious, but there could be other intents and purposes for that data, which could be, uh, you know, negative. And the ethical boundaries between how they can use our data is something that we're largely leaving to corporations to determine for themselves. So is it a matter of we need to own the data as ordinary citizens or should we actually say that there should be a data bank and companies should start paying to use our data and really disclose how often they use our data. I'm actually on the artificial intelligence parliamentary group here in the UK and there are things like if you use an AI system to look through people's resumes, how do we ensure that it's ethical and not discriminating against perhaps minorities or other uh, groups because obviously these systems are just learning and they can have implicit bias in them if there are certain traits that are looked at as favorable as compared to others. So that's something that we as a society need to have a conversation about. And I don't even know if we're really actually thinking about the, uh, the implications of artificial intelligence and data as a whole. Actually, on this particular point, something else that's pretty pertinent that came to mind is we're always looking for alternatives, right? Let's say today's infrastructure for cybersecurity is not very good or not meeting the standards. What are some of the alternatives that we actually have? Now, when it comes to the finance world, they're looking for alternatives like Bitcoin and things like that. But when it comes to cybersecurity, I don't know if you've heard of it, but there's something called the dark web. And no, this is not the African-American web. This is the dark web. Now, what is the dark web in itself? It is pretty much an unfiltered, um, open sort of landscape where anything goes and it is commonly used for uh, malicious things such as you know drug trafficking and things of the like but it's also an avenue for investigators and people that don't want to have their information out there to share it between themselves and not risk getting caught whether you're in a, in a regime that is you know monitoring the internet in some of the African countries or even the more dictatorial ones around the world in South America and in Asia the dark web is an avenue for people to get information and things done in such a way that they are away from the limelight. Now, if you really think about some of the common cases that we've heard of recently, so like Julian Assange or Edward Snowden, um, these are very, very pertinent cases at the moment because they used the dark web or other avenues to spread information to let us as citizens know what our governments are actually doing with our information and the pervasive scanning that was happening. Now, in some regards, this is a good thing, but in other ways, it might not necessarily be. The dark web is an open landscape for anyone to use how they see fit. Now, I personally have never used it, uh, but um, I don't know if we should be trying to regulate this or to try and stifle it in any way. Uh, right now, when you go on Google and whatever you search for, you are being presented with information that has been filtered in some capacity. Now, I would personally like to see unfiltered information uh, because then I know I'm getting raw data. But if it's filtered for me, who knows if this becomes to the point or it gets to the point, should I say, that this is radically personalized and I am being 
being warped into a particular world view. You don't know that information. So for instance, if I search up the, the country Egypt, I might get certain facts and figures based on my particular preference. So it might show things like the Egyptian football team, for instance. Meanwhile, uh, my mom could search for it and she would come up with, uh, who knows, the Tower of Giza or you know the pyramids and things like that. Stuff that I am not particularly interested in in at all, especially given the COVID-19 situation. I don't think we should be going anywhere near mummies and pyramids at this time. So with that said, um, at this particular moment, it is a very pertinent topic, whether we wanna have the dark web and keep it open for all to use, or if some of these personalizations or restrictions in what we see is actually a good thing for society. We're not really sure. Um, so that's what we'll be discussing with Jeff a bit later on. Another thing that I wanted to bring up in the show and something that I was thinking about was the fact that uh, at the moment, there is this myth when it comes to your data and your uh, security online that, uh, you know, the cloud and storing things online in some sort of database is the best way to go about it um, versus having it on like your physical phone or something like that, which can get hacked. But a lot of these databases, Google Drive or iCloud or any of them, are open to, to, to hacks as well. I'm not sure if anyone heard about this, but about a year ago, um, you know, the FBI, or is it about two years ago, the FBI wanted to get into a particular uh, phone, an Apple phone, and they were able to, um, and that, you know, they could access the, whether it was the cloud or anything on that particular phone because they were doing an investigation. Uh, to Apple's credit, they didn't want to share that information because it's secure, uh, wink, wink. But for the most part, they were able to get into it and actually get into the cloud and all those types of things. So the physical versus online data security is, is, is something that's pretty interesting and I think we should probably have a conversation about. Last but not least, uh, I wanted to also bring up the myth or the misconception around this topic, which is primarily concerned um, with regards to in the event of an actual data leak, right? What is the right repercussion for us as a society to, to go towards? And I say this because these data leaks are gonna keep happening um, and our cybersecurity infrastructure is always playing catch up. We'll never actually be at that end point. Now, uh, when these actual leaks happen, what do we as a society uh, determine is the best way to go about, uh, you know, either penalizing the companies or uh, creating that infrastructure that allows us all to be safe and to ensure that sensitive company secrets and information like that is not spread around the globe. Uh, I don't know if many of you have heard, but, you know, China has been accused of attacking U.S. companies, stealing IP and then using some of that stuff to create their own companies in America. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to create intellectual property IP um, and I'm not saying that as you know I'm physically trying to go pee I'm talking about intellectual property guys uh, get your minds out the gutter this is something that is you know pretty hard to create in the first place it takes years and it takes billions of dollars to actually do and when you have it stolen your company could be at the risk for you know billions of dollars on the hook your competitors now have that information and they can come into your market and create the same product for even cheaper you know there's multiple ramifications for this so in other words what happens when there's a data breach and we as a society have to now deal with the repercussions of it. But enough about me, let's have a chat with Jeff to see what he thinks on the topic and uh, hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. So first and foremost, we'll start off with understanding where we currently are in this climate um, in terms of the surveillance state, because we know that over the past couple of years with things like Snowden or even Julian Assange, you know, a lot of surveillance has become more prominent in society and given COVID and a few other things happening, it seems like it's like it's only getting worse. Hmm. Um, from your perspective, how extensive is the surveillance state at the moment? And is it getting worse or are, are the checks and balances starting to work as, as hmm. society gets more and more relevant? It's really interesting. So one of the things about coronavirus that I found quite interesting is obviously there's there's now the idea that we can use technical means to track and, and trace people uh, who might be infected, who might be spreading an infection. Um, and there's concerns about the invasion of privacy. There's concerns about all that. What I find interesting is the um, uh, techies and tech security people, particularly people who've worked, you know, in government on this sort of stuff, are saying compared to the amount of data that many people 
every single day give over to people like Google and Facebook, the amount of data the government's asking for is actually really small. Uh, and I do get that argument. Of course, whenever the government does something, it does it to millions of people at once. So we do need to have a higher level of, of checks and balances on that. But I have found that interesting of uh, the, the, the sort of security type community saying, look, you, you give all this data over willingly to Google and Apple and Facebook and so on. What's your problem with with, with giving some to us? And that's what's interesting. Mate. You mentioned the, the Edward Snowden um, documents. Obviously, you know, former contractor used to work for the National Security Agency in the US, stole a whole bunch of very sensitive documents and leaked them. Um, and what that revealed was that the US government had effectively uh, made arrangements, it seems, with social media companies, among them people like uh, Facebook, to uh, and Apple and Google and so on and Yahoo and so on to get access to uh, information that those companies stored. Now that only works if you and me and everybody else is feeding information into those companies. So it's an interesting sort of question here about whether it's it's government surveillance we need to be worried about or whether it's our willingness to give over massive amounts of information to private companies that then get told by governments, hang on, you need to share this information for us. And what's interesting is, you know, in the UK and the US, we do have systems in place. You know, there are committees that review this stuff. If uh, police, for example, in the UK want to get access to your emails, and your communications, they have to go to a judge and they have to get the permission of the judge and actually uh, apply, I think, to the Home Secretary as well. Um, so there's the systems in place. The problem, of course, is in the UK and the US, you could say, well, we have systems in place. It's all fairly locked down. And then you, you go to other countries that have a slightly less solid legal system, a slightly less solid political system. And they say, well, hang on, Google, Apple, Facebook, whoever you are, you've given access to the UK government, the US government. We want access as well. We're a government. And then you go to a country that has no rule of law, that has a completely despotic government, and they turn around to Apple and Facebook and say, well, you know, you, you've done it for these other countries. So it's a question of, you know, how long the queue of people uh, is who are getting access to this information. So I think there's a number of questions. Number one is how much are we as citizens giving over to private companies? How much are we putting out there that can then get picked up uh, by governments? Number two, there's how rigid is the oversight of the governments? Um, so one of the interesting things, again, going back to Snowden, was at the time, um, the in the UK, all of this sort of surveillance stuff is overseen by a government committee, a parliamentary committee, uh, so it called the Intelligence and Security Committee. Uh, and the chair of that Intelligence and Security Committee is the one who gets the intelligence chiefs in, your GCHQs, your MI6s, and so on, and says, what are you guys doing? What, 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 if, what have you got at your disposal? Um, and how, how well are you policing that? Is there any abuse of those things that you're doing? <clears throat> now, what was interesting was the chair of the ISC at the time was a guy called Malcolm Wifkin, Sir Malcolm Wifkin. When the Snowden documents broke, my sense for how he and I guess therefore the committee responded was to say, well, what's the problem? You know, these guys are all doing it in the best interests and so on. It didn't feel like the people on that committee had my interests at heart as a citizen of the United Kingdom, it felt a bit like the committee was was saying, well, hang on, we need to protect the intelligence agencies. And I was thinking, well, no, you're elected MPs. You exist to protect my rights, not their rights. So I did feel in terms of how well the UK government and presumably other governments oversee the intelligence agencies and their surveillance systems, I felt at that point wasn't wasn't robust enough. And I still think there's room for a committee of people, not just MPs, but experts, privacy experts, security experts, and members of the public to get access to this kind of stuff. It's sensitive material, but there are ways around that. And to see what the intelligence agencies are doing and to, to, to decide as a society whether we think that level of surveillance is right or wrong. I mean, in terms of the coronavirus stuff, it's absolutely fascinating the reaction um, people are having to the idea of not even a government mandated uh, app, mobile phone app to, to track people, but but a voluntary app even. People have concerns about that. Um, and rightly so. I mean, we can come on to the coronavirus tracing apps and how they work if, if you want to. But I think what this throws up is we've had a long history of concern about how governments use data. And frankly, governments, through not being transparent, through not being open, have problems with that. And what we're seeing now is those problems coming home to roost. You want people to give over data about coronavirus. You want them to install the app. They need to trust governments with data. And I, I don't get the sense there's a huge amount of trust out there uh, among the public. 
Yeah, trust seems to be at an all-time low in general, whether it's the political arena or the business arena or finance, you know, trust is really low. And I wonder to myself as, you know, as an average citizen, can we really legislate our way towards the um, the balance in society that we're trying to get to, because mm-hmm. I work in technology and I see anytime you put legislation in place, technology always finds a way to skirt around it, right? There's, it's, it's very easy to get a, around all these rules and regulations, GDPR, you know, they're well-intentioned, but it's mm-hmm. always behind the curve um, and technology always seems to find a way around it. So is it a matter of legislating our way towards it? Um, or is there some other type of social contract that we're going to have to, to, to come to in order for us to be able to, to come to uh, the utopia or a better way of working in the world when it comes to data surveillance and those freedoms that we're willing to give up? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think the, the Cambridge Analytica example is, is an interesting one to, to look at in this. So, um, you know, a political lobbying company in the UK, um, political services firm in the UK, and also based partly in the US, um, wanted to to get data on people. So they, they effectively hired a bunch of people to take this quiz, a, a psychological quiz. Through that, because of the way Facebook's set up, and because, frankly, of the way we use Facebook as, as, as individuals, this company was able to access millions and millions of people's public profiles and find out some public information about them, which they then used to help uh, political parties and so on. So, so that was the rough story. In terms of how the law and how our sort of regulation and so on kicked in when Cambridge Analytica became public uh, was really interesting. So there was in the UK, there was the Information Commissioner's Office, which is our sort of data protection watchdog. They fined Cambridge Analytica, uh, sorry, fined Facebook um, £500,000, which at the time I think was the limit of what they could do. They can now fine, I think, up to 2% of, of global revenues. So the fine might have been a lot higher. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, by the way, uh, went under as a company shortly after the, the revelations came out, so they weren't fined. Um, in the US, the fines were much, much higher. There was sort of invasion of privacy actions in the US. So when this stuff happens, when there is invasion of privacy, there are sort of systems in place uh, to, to deal with that. And you mentioned the GDPR, this European Data Protection Regulation. It's interesting, I mean, GDPR, as I say, if nothing else, the fines that Facebook could have faced during Cambridge Analytica would have been way, way bigger than half a million. I mean, frankly, half a million is a decent lunch break for, I suspect, for some executives at Cambridge at uh, Facebook. Um, so the fines could be much higher. So yes, there are, regulation can work. But what you've got to remember about that GDPR thing is it took years, years and years of negotiation around different countries. Number two, it came from a European member block. So it's a block of countries negotiating this, of which, of course, the UK was one, is no longer. So again, in terms of making regulation work, making it stick, it's going to take a long time. You're going to have loads and loads of negotiations and and lobbying and people wanting this and people wanting that. When you do get to the end and actually get the, the result, it'll only work if you do it en masse, if, if a bunch of countries do that together. And I have to say, I do have concerns about you know, I'm not political about Brexit, but in a post, you know, post Brexit world, I do have concerns about the UK passing laws and being able to pass really tough laws against technology companies and enforcing on technology companies. I mean, if you've got the weight of all those 28 European countries, 27 European countries behind you, you can really do something legally. You can say, look, there's a bunch of us. We're all doing this. If you're one country on your own, I think it's uh, I think it's slightly, uh, slightly trickier. So look, to answer your question, I mean, there is stuff we can do with regulation. It does work. But as you say, the technology companies are often trying to uh, trying to get ahead of it. And it's interesting. I've started reading a book about um, Uber uh, at the moment, a book called Super Pumped. It's all about Uber. And one of the amazing things about Uber was corporately, in terms of the corporate mindset of that company, was was how they felt about regulation. They felt that that was a, a hurdle. Their idea was, why are we regulating things? Why do we have these laws? There was almost a sort of corporate mindset that said, laws are bad, get rid of laws. This seemed to be, this is my sort of reading of it, you know, that the regulations surrounding the industries are just holding everything back. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes, you know, laws prevent innovation, but there just seemed to be this thing in terms of the technology companies of, well, of course, our technology is not going to be bound by the law because, of course, our technology is going to be, make things way better. So the law shouldn't hold us back. I think it comes from a hubris within these technology companies that they can change the world for the better. Uh, it's not always it's not always the case. Sometimes those laws are there to protect people, to protect their livelihoods. Yeah, no, those are excellent points. I think 
you know, in terms of the the, the trade off between uh, convenience hmm. and privacy, that's a very hotly debated topic. And the reason why I'm asking about this is because you know I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a tech guy, and when I have access to data, I can come up with new. Uh, services and products that can really help people. Hmm. And, you know, if you think of your Google assistant on your phone, right, it can hear everything you're doing, but at the same time, it can schedule your flights for you or, you know, record things that, that you need to document. Hmm. So that whole trade off between the two, I think the financial services industry has started to do it well, where they have, they have like open banking where you can give permission to, you know, have your data uh, be used to create new, new um, services and things like that. Yeah. But in, in your capacity as an in- investigator, have you seen or what's your notion or understanding of how uh, companies are using the data? Um, would, would it be a case that most of them are using it in an ethical, fair manner? Or are most of them exploiting it because the repercussions are either so low based on the rules and regulations that are just catching up? Or, you know, how would you how would you say that companies are actually dealing with handling this data, that privacy versus freedom debate? Mm. It's interesting. The, the, uh, the One of the best ways to do this is to... Is to um, Take a deep breath and have a look at the terms and conditions of what you're signing up to. Don't, don't do it for every company. Just have once, you know, once every now and again, just have a quick look through. And there's a section um, that's usually about intellectual property rights. The, the rights you give the company that you're signing up with, uh, the rights you give them over the information that you're going to give them. So let's say you sign up to, I don't know, a dating service. You know, you're going to give them your email address, your phone number, your picture, personal details about yourself. Usually, particularly in things like Tinder, there'll be, or, or Grindr, there'll be a sort of a location-based thing, you know, so you can meet, meet dates near you. So you give them your postcode and your location. Um, and depending on the dating service you use, that can be some quite sensitive information. If, for example, you are using Grindr, a, da- a gay dating app, and that's in a country where homosexuality is, is legal, semi-legal, um, is illegal rather, or semi-legal, that's sensitive information. If you go down to the sort of terms and conditions in some of these dating apps, um, what you'll tend to find is a huge range of rights that the company gives themselves over, over this data. You know, we, get, we use this data, you know, we have an irrevocable right over this data in perpetuity to use it for whichever purposes we want, not limited to advertising, marketing, and so on. I, I get the feeling companies are giving themselves huge rights over the information that we give them. And I understand why that is. I think there's a hard economic reason behind this, which is a lot of these companies are looking to sell. They're looking to go public, float on the stock market, or they're looking to be bought up by somebody else. And what they're looking forward to is that payday. And if when that payday comes, when they sell the company or they sell their shares or whatever, if an investor turns around and says, okay, what rights have you got over all this data? You've got loads of data. What can you do with it? If the company turns around and says, oh, well, very little because we, you know, we don't ask people many permissions, then that devalues the company because the investors say, well, you've got this data, but you know, it's quite locked down. If you've done like a lot of these companies do and, and drawn the terms really broad, when the investors come along and say, what can you do with all this data? You can turn around and say anything. You can do anything you like because <laughs> they've all signed up. These So I understand the economic imperative. The problem with that is um, it makes it very difficult for us as individuals to control what happens with our data. Um, one Again, going back to GDPR, one of the, the things that I like about GDPR is this idea that you, you, you ask for people's information for the particular purpose. You can't go beyond that purpose. And supposedly, you can't share that information with other people without getting the permission of the person who's given you the information. I think that third bit's really interesting because you've talked about how tech companies deal with data and, and, and so on. I think that's an important point. There's then the question of who they share that information with. And what's interesting about that is there's a hinterland of people building up uh, information beyond the companies that we deal with. So I deal with, let's say, the dating company, you know, Tom's top dating company. I give them my information, but they then share a little bit of that information with somebody else, maybe my location and and maybe my age or something like that, with another company that I've never heard of, but they've got a, a contract with them. And that company I've never heard of, Company X, is also getting a bit of information from over here and a bit of information from over there and a bit of information from over there. And if they can tie all those pieces of information together, then what they get is a complete rounded view of me as an individual. And what's interesting is for me, I don't know that Company X has that that view of me because all I know is I've given a bit of information here and a bit of information there and a bit of information there. But somebody in the background has gathered it all together. And those companies, I find those I find those operations sort of fascinating because their their job is to pull all of this information together. What's interesting for me under again GDPR and these regulations is if I say to the dating company, right, delete my account, no more. 
how much are the dating company going to go into the chain of people they've given the information to? Are they going to turn around to company X and say, please delete that data? And by the way, please delete all of the other data stores that were linked to that data. So the dating company has given some information to company X. Company X has put it together here and put it together here. If the dating company says company X delete Jeff White's data, does that mean company X has to delete all the connections they've made using that bit of data I've given to them? So there's this whole sort of system and network uh, sort of built up in the background. In terms of convenience and, 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 and security, though, you talked about the convenience and privacy. Frankly, what I've just described, um, how many people are going to go into that? It's far more convenient to enter your email address, get a date, and just <laughs> be blind to the consequences of what's going to happen to your data. So I, I worry people will, will often choose convenience over security. Yeah, it's it's really troubling. Uh, when I, whenever I go online to these websites, um, whatever it is, they make it so easy to opt in. You know, the button is green, and then if you want to opt out, you see the list of two hundred different third parties, and you have to manually opt out of each yeah. one of them. By the yeah. time I reach like one fifty, I'm exhausted. You know, so there's all these sorts sorts of hacks that they do to make you um, buy into the service. But then also that when I saw the the number of third parties, it was staggering. You know, I was like, I can't believe yeah. my company's being sh- my my data is being shared with like. 300 yeah. companies it's yeah. unbelievable and what's what's amazing is i've, I've spoken to um there's been some really interesting conferences recently trying to kind of work this out because obviously after gdpr came in it's, it's a big shock to the industry and what you've got is um you've got two extremes at this end you've got advertisers who, who have a product to sell they've got adverts they want to run and at the other end you've got publishers which is websites mainly you know the daily mail website the guardian website you know who've got who've got eyeballs and people looking at them and traditionally you know, your company over here would phone up your, your your newspaper and say, "I want to place an ad," and the paper would put the you know the ad in the paper, and that's how that would go. You know, that was that's the traditional model. Now there's an infinite number of intermediaries taking the money and the and the and the insights and so on from the advertising companies and funneling it through this whole industry towards the actual website that the advert goes on, and that industry in the middle. That's all of those companies you've talked about, the dozens and dozens you see when you when you try and opt out of cookies. It's them. Those are the companies. Websites, publisher websites are littered with technology from dozens and dozens of companies you've never heard of. And what I, the reason publishers do this, by the way, is they get paid. So if, if I'm an advertising company and I want some insights into people, I can go to, you know, a big publisher, a big newspaper website and say, could I pay you for each month to put a little bit of code on your site that just tracks this bit or just tracks that or just, just gets this bit of information? And of course, you know, if you're one of these newspapers who are losing money, people aren't buying papers anymore, you'd say, well, this is an extra source of money. So they stick the code on their website. And so that's why you have these dozens and dozens and dozens of companies you've never heard of, who've all got a little bit of the newspaper's website. What worries me is, A, as I say, where's that data going? B, from a security point of view, that's a real problem. So there's an amazing story, I think, uh, started a couple of years ago. Um Ticketmaster was the, the, the example. So Ticketmaster sells tickets to concerts. You go on Ticketmaster, you get your tickets to Ed Sheeran, you fill in your credit card, bang, off you go. You, you go into the concert. What the hackers did was they thought, well, we can't, breaking into Ticketmaster seems pretty tough. But on Ticketmaster's site, there's loads of other bits of code from all these other companies that you know people never heard of. And some of those are really small and probably easy to break into. So they broke into one of those companies, which allowed them then to break into the Ticketmaster site and scrape people's credit card numbers as they were entered. That, see, this is the thing. It's not just a privacy risk. It's also a security risk when you've got two dozen companies you've never heard of all running bits of code on your site. It's, it's, it's a, that, that did keep me awake at night, I'll be honest. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's quite nerve wracking. And towards the advertising portion that you spoke about, you know, there's the whole, um, understanding of personalization, right? Which is, which is great. And sometimes I get worried because as a regular consumer, I think to myself, am I being presented with information to maximize a company's economic profit or to mm. skew my thinking in a certain way? Mm. And am I not being presented with information because people want to hide it? And I'll give you an example, which was really frightening actually the other day. I watched the news, the BBC, and uh, I remember one of the, you know, these COVID daily updates. And the person, uh, one of the, you know, the, the officials mentioned that um, just because um, the person has COVID-19 on their death certificate, their, their death certificate doesn't mean they actually died of COVID-19. We haven't actually tested it, but the ONS data shows that 
you know, they died of COVID. And I was like, wait, did I really just hear what I thought I heard? And so I tried to find this clip again and I went on Google and I typed in the person's name, the date they said it and like two or three mm. lines of what they said and I couldn't find the information. And I was and I was looking and looking, I went on YouTube, I went everywhere and I was like, there's definitely a concern. Someone has tried to hide this information. You know, someone has tried to ha- cover up this blunder. I had to go to the 15th page of the O in Google to find this information. Uh, what's your perspective on that, on people, on personalization mm. and also you know, being uh, presented with a distorted worldview. I mean, it's kind yeah. of scary. I mean, it's interesting. So I worked for an internet company back in, uh, in 99. It was when I first started getting involved in, in technology. Um, and what people failed to realize about, particularly the advertising boom during the, during the dot-com boom, was that personalization drove the entire thing. The reason the web got big was because if I'm an advertiser and I'm going to sell, I don't know, Jeff White's hair product, I can stick it out on the side of the bus and I don't know, a few thousand people will see it, but it's an advert for, I don't know, men's hair shampoo. So half the people who see it obviously aren't going to be interested because they're women. You know, you don't understand when you just put an ad on the side of the bus who's going to see it. Contrast that with the internet. A site like, I don't know, Men's Health can say, well, all the people who visit our website, most of them are going to be men. They're going to be interested in grooming. Put your advert on our site. And so the internet company I worked with were charging megabucks for adverts because we could say to people, your ad will get in front of the eyeballs it needs to get in front of. We're not going to waste any of your ad revenue. We can micro-target this. The micro-targeting, and again, this came up during the Cambridge Analytica thing, the idea that you could micro-target voters on their particular concerns. That micro-targeting fueled the web. It's created you know, the web that we have in front of us right now. So the personalization that you've talked about, the, 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 the sort of evil apple, if you like, in the kind of um, Garden of Eden that is the internet. That is it. The personalization is is the poisoned apple. Um, uh, the problem now is it's got so advanced that, as you say, two different people reading can see two different things. Now, a, a publication like the BBC, BBC News, you, you mentioned, for example, that's really interesting because one of the good things about the BBC, for, for all its faults, one of the good things about the BBC is it does generally have one website, sticks to one website. What you read on that website is there and is generally there when you when you go back. What, what concerns me is as we as news organizations get increasingly into personalization, and by the way, Facebook for most people is now considered almost a news organization. A lot of people get their news from Facebook and Twitter and so on. What they what's important to realize about these these services is Everybody gets a different Facebook. Your Facebook looks different to mine. Your Twitter looks different to mine. We have to be intensely aware of the fact that, that as a society, if we're all reading different things and seeing different things, when we come together to talk about that stuff, where's our common ground? If, if, you, if you're not uh, seeing the same facts as I am, if you're reading something completely different, where you know this is a big problem with, with you know with things like brexit and with with uh, multiple issues around the world that are politically febrile issues part of the problem with people having a common dialogue and being civil to each other and just trying to see eye to eye and make sensible decisions is we're starting from a position where we haven't read the same stuff we're starting from a position where we don't have the same newspapers and people you know talk about they say well you know newspapers that they're in control then of what they print if there's only one newspaper they decide what to print well somewhere between having one newspaper that runs one line and never changes it and what we've got now which is where everybody's facebook looks different and everybody's getting a different news angle somewhere between the two i think is a good compromise particularly if we're going to come up against these really difficult uh sort of political decisions and again coronavirus is a really interesting example in this there's People on Facebook are seeing multiple different explanations, multiple different conspiracies often. Um, and what's interesting is it's now got to the point where there's, there's a backlash against the mainstream media where, for example, there's a conspiracy about 5G being behind uh, coronavirus. Um, people are interested in looking into this. And I, I don't blame them. It's something you might want to look into. But when mainstream media says, well, actually, we've spoken to a bunch of experts and none of them can can pin coronavirus on 5G. There's a backlash against mainstream media as though they're sort of hiding something. Uh, and that's, I think, where we've got to that, that the personalization has led us down this path where we don't have a common language anymore. It does worry me. 
yeah, we, uh, for society to function, there has to be some common ground. If not, it kind of all goes to chaos. And we're starting to see that, um, you know, fall apart in, in the Western world, especially. But it, something to build on on top of that is, you know, when I really think about it currently, people are looking for alternatives, right? People are looking at alternatives to finance. So they're looking at Bitcoin. They're looking at alternatives to the political arena. Uh, there's shoots in the US of like independent parties, even though they'll probably never get anywhere. But, you know, in the UK, people are looking for alternatives. Now, when we look at the internet or data, you know, there are things like the dark web or people will look at alternative streaming sites because they're getting censored on maybe YouTube or Instagram. They'll start to go to Vimeo and things like that. Hmm. These alternatives, which are unregulated and, you know, sort of free for all, which is what people want, um, what's your perspective on those alternatives or what, what are some of the best alternatives we can present to people than the current status quo? Is it to go to the dark web? Is it to use Bitcoin? Is it to, hmm. to, to use the ones that are being offered to us? Or is there something else we can do completely? Uh, I think it's interesting. I think it's a really interesting question. And what's interesting about the things you've talked about, Bitcoin and the dark web and so on, and, and the kind of unregulated um, video sharing websites, um, is, is at the moment, they're often associated with fringe and sometimes illegal activities. Um, I mean, particularly the dark web, it's, it's a classic example, is, is um, what most people know of the dark web is its use in kind of drug sales sites and, 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 and for legal hacking services and so on. Um, well, I think what people have missed in that is that there's a, there's a, um, increasing use of dark web technology by, by journalists and by publications. So if you want to leak information to a major publication, it's often dark web technology that they ask you to use so that you can send the information, uh, secretly. So that's certainly starting to kind of enter, uh, into the mainstream. Um, I don't know. I just think there's an interesting, there's an interesting tension. I feel at the moment between um, people's desire to get away from regulation, desire to, as you say, discover new ways of doing things and the fear and the problems that come about as a result of that. Uh, so, for example, um, social media companies um, take a very light touch towards uh, towards uh, the content that goes on their platforms. And it's for very good reasons. You know, if you're uh, Instagram and there's millions of pictures being posted every day. You can't go through every single picture and just check it before it goes live. There'd be a queue, an ever building <laughs> queue of time. You know, your fake, your Instagram update will go live in two years. Um, so there is that, that, that issue of trying to police uh, stuff before it goes live. Um, what's interesting is uh, under European law, social media companies, tech companies generally are not liable. And this is civil or criminal liability. So even if you put something criminal on one of these sites, they're not liable for the stuff that's been uploaded, legally liable, until they're told about it. So if you spot something infringing on Instagram or whatever, you can tell them about it and then they, they are obliged to take it down. But when the stuff goes up, as far as I know, there's no legal liability that they have to vet everything as it goes through. That's really starting to shift now. That's really starting to change. There's this idea in the UK, it's being discussed of a duty of care that a social media company has to have some system in place to vet stuff as it comes through, to spot stuff as it comes through. So I get the feeling there's an interesting tension between, on the one hand, people wanting a totally free internet and wanting to be free of all the old ties that bind them. But it's a classic thing of when you get what you wanted, when you get what you came for, did you actually really want it? You know, do we want a world in which any content, no matter how harmful, psychologically damaging, revenge porn, all that sort of stuff, do we want a world where that's beyond regulation? So do you see the tension now? I think there's, I think there's an interesting back and forth that goes back. Yeah, it's definitely quite interesting. I think it's more so, uh, people are concerned with, they want the freedoms, um, of these alternatives, but with a way to minimize the negative aspects. And mm. it's almost like you're trying to eat your cake and have it at the same time, right? You're <laughs> yeah. gonna have to, 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 to choose one or the other. But, mm. um, uh, something else that's, that's pretty interesting is, you know, artificial intelligence is coming to the foray over the next year, uh, or two. Um, a lot of companies will be starting up and AI, touches on a lot of things because it assembles different data sets. Yeah. It reinforces biases. It gives companies immense power. What's your view on um, artificial intelligence? And I ask about this because obviously as a minority, I'm worried about it reinforcing biases and like hiring and things like that. It could affect yeah. some communities disproportionately to the other. Yeah. Um, what's your view on, on artificial intelligence and, and how that's going to change the future? Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. I think, um, the bias argument is an interesting one. It, it is certainly the case that, I mean, I've done a lot of stuff on facial recognition, and it's certainly the case that in some facial recognition systems, 
they struggle because um, they're trained on a, a data set. So basically, if you want facial recognition to recognize some faces, you have to give it millions of faces to practice on. Now, obviously, in a country where I think in the UK, um, um, minority ethnic uh, population is around, I think it's 18%. I think that's the figure. So obviously, 80% of the faces you're going to give to your AI are probably going to be white faces. So it gets very good at spotting those and, and less good at spotting minority ethnic faces. Um, and that's obviously resulted in some some quite worrying uh, outcomes. There's a great experiment in the US where they fed in, um, I think it was they fed in suspects in criminal cases uh, and the AI managed to match them to a whole bunch of senators and congressmen. <laughs> so the idea was, well, you know, uh, if, if you're a black congressman, you must be one of these sort of wrongdoers and so on. So, uh, you know, this is definitely the case. The problem with pursuing that line is the response of the AI industry, and particularly in facial recognition, is, well, we just need more data. If only more minority ethnic people would give us their faces and, and, and we can we can train our algorithms. If only you have more data, then we'll get around this sort of bias. So I worry that you're sort of, you're kind of backing yourself into a bit of a corner if you start arguing about those those biases. But the other thing it throws up is that, you know, technology is only as good as the people who create it. Um, I mean, it's interesting, so many of the stories I've covered with technology companies, um, it's not that the technology companies set out to do something wrong or set out to do evil or to screw something up. It's it's that they they started out thinking that their technology could change the world and change the world for the better. And I think a load of tech companies have that. They have that. It, like I mentioned with Uber, it's like, well, we, of course, we're going to make the world immeasurably better. Um, you know, there's a great, Eric Schmidt wrote a book about Google. And if you wrote the book, if you read the book, uh, Google was the answer to everything. Every The answer to every problem in the world, as far as Eric Schmidt was concerned, was more Google, which is the same thing. If you have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You know, these technology companies genuinely believe they're going to do good. But they just never quite think of the unintended consequences of what they might do. They're so busy and so excited about what they're going to do that they don't have anyone sitting in the corner. I think they should have an office troll who just sits in the someone like me who just sits in the corner. Oh, yeah. But if you thought about this, oh, people could abuse it. Just somebody who's just negative about everything, just so that they've thought of it and, you know, sort of addressed it. Um, So I think... uh, uh, I think that's that sort of one issue for the uh, for, for the technology company. Sorry, I've completely forgotten the question at that stage. I'm <laughs> thinking about no, it was just generally talk. about artificial intelligence AI, and yes. how we can stop stop the uh, biases that being yeah. reinforced. I guess it's kind of it, yeah, it's tricky. It's it's really interesting. So the, the, I made a series about AI for Audible, and I started speaking to lots of different people about about AI. And what's interesting was, on the one hand, I spoke to technology policy researchers and ethicists and lobbyists and so on who were saying, what we need is transparency. So the point, you know, the example you've pointed out about minority ethnic uh, bias, well, let's have some transparency about that. Let's work out how these systems are working, what, how they're making the decisions so that you can challenge it. If uh, you pointed out the idea of recruitment, if you apply for a job and there's some automated CV scanning software that is biased against minority ethnic names, which you know, it's not unfeasible. There's been hints of that before. There should be some way of, of, of um, appealing that and of seeing what decision the machine's been made and how it's made it. And so that you can say, well, hang on, this, 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 I've not been listed for an interview because your, your AI is biased. Number one, you've got to know that the AI is in use. And often companies' technology is so uh, automated now that you don't even know you're in an AI system. But also, number two, when I spoke to the techies who are actually coding the AI and coding these systems, what was really interesting was you say to them, so given enough time and enough budget, could you take a decision the computer's made and work all the way back through all the different reasons it made that decision, all the steps it took, and actually break down why it got to that conclusion? And frankly, the answer from a lot of the techies was no, because the systems are now so running so fast with so much data, they're making so many decisions based on so many other decisions, you can't ever track back why it made that decision. Even, you know, Microsoft, you know, they use AI for their search engine. They said, look, we, we can't really ever explain to you why the search engine gave you that result. That's really terrifying because try and put those two things together. Try and get the ethicists saying, you need transparency. You need to explain this stuff to them. And the techies saying, sorry, but we can't, you know, I can't unpack that for you, you know, within my lifetime. One of the best comments I had was from a, a trader, financial trader who'd worked with AI for trading. And he said, we are just going to have to get used to the fact we can't see into a computer's mind in, in, in that kind of granular detail. We can't break down every single one and zero that it got through. We can we can do a lot, but we can't get there. And I, 
I think that's where that's where the wiggle room is. That's where the tension is in the future. Is is how much are we going to be able to trust AI if we can never get down to the absolute ones and zeros of how it made the decision? Are we willing to to say, well, I kind of understand roughly how it got there, but look, as human beings, you know, uh, the doctor makes a decision in the ch- in the in the GP surgery. I don't question every single thing that went through his mind. So so there is precedent, I suppose. But it's it's just I feel if we're designing AI and designing technology. Inevitably, we're going to ask for better standards and higher standards than we do with the sort of impenetrable human brains that we have at the moment. <laughs> yeah, no, that's excellent. Uh, thanks so much, Jeff. I think you've had some really uh, valuable insights. If there's any advice you could leave with our audience, uh, what advice or recommendations would you leave with them? Um, I think it's, it's, it's this, really. Um, as the coronavirus, you know, has, has, has shown us, you know, technology is all around us and can be really helpful. And God knows what we would have done in a pre-internet era with the coronavirus. I mean, it's really, it's an interesting thing to think about. So, you know, it has wonderful uh, benefits to us. However, part of the power, you know, there's that great quote from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, yes, you can use all of these technologies and Zoom and Teams and all these and house party, but the quid pro quo is you have to do a bit of digging and dig a bit deeper into how this stuff works. That's our responsibility now. And again, we have Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, all these great social media services. Again, that's great power. The responsibility then on us is to go, well, I can share. Should I share? Do I need to have all of this stuff out? If I do share it, what's going to happen in the future? I mean, a load of people shared their pictures on Facebook because Facebook said, upload your picture. And then you get companies coming along like Clearview, who scrape Facebook and grab all of your pictures and use them on facial recognition. So it's not just thinking now, how's my data going to be used? It's thinking in the future, how could this data be used or or perhaps misused and abused? Sounds good. Uh, if anyone wants to hear more about you and the work you're doing, how can they find you? Best place on, on Twitter, ironically, for all I've said about social media. It's Jeff White, so Jeff with a G, white like the color, and then the number's 247. Well, that's it for today's episode of Sokka's Is That So? Thanks for joining us. Jeff was an excellent guest, and hopefully you guys learned a thing or two about cybersecurity. It's an all-encompassing topic, and one I thought was very interesting because it touches boundaries such as ethical, business, and cultural all at the same time. If I was to leave you guys with any pieces of advice, it's that there is an app called Telegram that you can use uh, if you want to send information or text without it being spied upon in general. Uh, Also use two-factor authentication. That's something you should check out. It's where you don't only put in your very safe password, but you also get a text or something like that, which you've seen with the likes of Google and a few other types of companies. and then also, last but not least, uh, you know, don't rely on the sort of anti-Norton viruses and things like that that you can buy for your uh, online systems. I would get something that's a bit more uh, higher grade than that. Uh, I would have things such as the iCloud or any of those types of uh, infrastructure because then you're not just relying on the localized uh, version of it. You're relying on the uh, big companies that have better cybersecurity than you and I can ever download locally. uh, And that's probably the best place to store your information. But don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast. Uh, This comes out every Tuesday. And if you like this episode as well, don't forget to share it with your friends. And hopefully uh, we can have other guests and discuss more interesting topics. 